well, actually, let me share something with you. By the way, good evening. Good to be here. <laughs> I just had this in mind as, uh, as we were singing, too. Oh, where is it? Um, as I was going through First Chronicles, David is organizing, he's, he's assigning the musicians, and that is organizing them for his son as he is going to build um, the temple. He's putting together all the supplies that are necessar- necessary in, in order for him to actually build the temple. But he himself, although he, he desired to do it, couldn't do it. The Lord told him that he had blood on his hands. He was a man of war. And so David, but what, what David did do is he realized that Solomon, you know, he was, he was young. He was inexperienced. And so, you know, instead of spending his time trying, time trying to figure things out, he gave him basically all the drawings. He gave him all the supplies. He, he got everything ready for him to build the temple. But with that, or and with that, he organized the musicians. And in First Chronicles chapter 25, I was thinking about this. And this is how important worship music is and the soundness of, of worship music is. And here it is right here. In First Chronicles chapter 25, verse 1 says, And David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun, who prophesied with lyres, with harps, and with cymbals. The list of those who did the work and other duties was of the sons of Asaph, and he went through some names there, and he continued on, said, uh, under the direction of Asaph, who prophesied under the direction of the king. And he makes mention of that several times even after that, as he continues to address the musicians that were going to be worshiping in the presence of the Lord. And so, that's why, Ray, it's important. That's why, church, it's important that we do pay attention to what the words are, how it is that we worship the Lord. Um, there are so many things I could go over that, that are not sound, but, but the soundness of the words that we sing to the Lord and we worship Him with need to be in line with the very Word of God, for that is prophecy. And that is singing praise to the Lord. So just keep that in mind. And that's, by the way, one of the reasons why we don't, we don't go along with uh, certain popular uh, worship bands that are out there because much of what they've been singing and putting together um, is not in line with God's word. Um, or they are practicing themselves uh, things that don't line up with God's word, such as Hillsong and Bethel and Jesus Culture. And we can go down the list. But that's why. That's right. Just so you know, that's how important it is. If, if uh, the Lord, through his word, is telling us that worship is that important, we should take it seriously as well, right? So we do. Even if you don't say amen, that's fine. All right, so this evening we are in Judges. Uh, we're in Judges chapter 1. And we're going to do just a brief intro into the book of Judges. And then we'll get into our study. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into the book. All right, Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing, your anointing, Lord, that you would give us understanding, that as we do look at, you know, even as we sung, Father, uh, Lord, we, we cry out to you, 
in times that we falter, we compromise, and you are merciful, and you hear our cries, and you give us an opportunity to repent and to come into a right relationship with you once again. And so I ask, Lord, that you would help us to see through this book, the study of this book in the following weeks and months, Lord, uh, not only the depravity of, of the human heart, Lord, that we as your people can falter much, Lord, but greater than that is your mercy and your grace. And we thank you that today we can rest in the assurance of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's nothing to add to it. We simply look to you and we are truly thankful for that and eternally grateful. And so, Lord, we commit this evening's study into your hands. We ask, Lord, that each one of us would hear your voice, would understand what you desire to have us apply in our own lives, to correct, to, to be able to, to apply to your glory. And so, Lord, we commit this time into your hands, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so overall, through the book of Judges, have all of you read through the book of Judges? It could be a very dark book, right? Because it could be a depressing book, because you go through it and you're like, they're at it again, right? Well, we're talking about the Israelites. They're, they're, they're failing again. They're compromising again. They, they keep going through the cycle. And it's a, it, it's a behavioral cycle that we see for the Israelites. And it's interesting because these are the very people who, whom God not only chose as his people, but had delivered them, delivered them from Egypt. That he had uh, brought them into, uh, towards a promised land, sustained them through the wilderness experience, and then brought them into the promised land. So this, uh, this whole cycle, although it may be something that we look at and don't understand as far as the Israelites are concerned, is something that we ourselves experience as his people, even still today. We're, we're hard-headed, hard-hearted, and it's amazing how it is that we find ourselves doing the very same thing. So just a basic introduction to the book of Judges. The, the text itself gives us no indication of the author, by the way, but Jewish tradition says that it's Samuel, the prophet. Uh, Samuel was the last of the judges that God raised to lead the Israelites during this period of Judges, which covers a period of about 340 years. There is a recurring theme that defines this cyclical behavior of the Israelites during this time. In fact, I believe that uh, in several areas, but I'll refer to Judges chapter 17, verse 6, says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Kind of sounds like today. Everyone doing what they think is right in their own eyes. There are clues within the book that suggests that the book was written before David established his kingdom. And after Saul was anointed king, uh, in uh, 1051 B.C. So we can compare certain, certain verses from Judges chapter 1, verse 21, compare that to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. And, and that's how we establish the time period where it was before David was king and after Saul was anointed as king. This, that's when it was written. And then also you can compare Judges 129 
to 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 16. Uh, the period of the judges covers from the death of Joshua until Saul was crowned king of Israel by Samuel the prophet. And of course, Judges is basically uh, chronologically set up to follow uh, the book of Joshua. So that's what we have as far as the book is concerned. Now, some of the things that we ought to be mindful of, uh, you know, the Judges displays the sinful inclination of the heart of man. And the justice and mercy and patience, the long-suffering of God. Along this period of time, we see how God raised up leaders among God's people to warn, assist, lead them back to the Lord. Um, we see that over and over and over again. The judges that were raised up were not what we would consider to be, you know, judges that, judges that we know today, uh, that sit in judgment in a court of law, but as leaders who would act as God's chosen deliverers from judgment due to, really, their rebellious hearts, to lead them to repentance, turning them back to God. Um, so these were heroes of the faith, is what we have here. And some of the heroes of the faith we will see in our time of study through the book of Judges are Othniel, Gideon, Shamgar, Deborah, Jephthah, Ehud, and many others. But we will also see how it is that these divinely appointed heroes were not perfect uh, by any stretch of the imagination. They were deeply flawed, and yet they were still used by God to deliver His people from idolatry and disbelief. Sometimes we discredit some people uh, because of their flaws. Uh, we're talking about character, uh, not character flaws, but personality flaws, um, you know, and, and, and we disregard them. When the Lord is using them, um, they are the ones that God has, uh, has appointed um, to do His very work. These people were divinely appointed by God to lead the people of Israel out of compromise and out of sin and back to, into a right relationship with the Lord. Now we know that God is just, and that's another important thing to consider as we go through this book. Throughout the book of Judges, we will see how God does not allow sin to go unpunished. He, he disciplines those whom He loves, and we know that according to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. God hears the cries of His people, and He is merciful. Time and time again, God's people cried out to Him, even though they were the ones that were responsible for the judgment that they found themselves in experiencing. But God would hear them and send a deliverer in the form of another judge to lead them out of their troubles one more time. We know that God is just, but He is also merciful. And he is long-suffering, and he desires that his people walk in obedience to his word. Throughout Judges, we see that God is full of love and grace toward his people as he never leaves them. He promised, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I, I, I will discipline you. I will give you warning. I will... He tells them all this, right? We see that at the end of Joshua, how it was that he warned the people, keep the law, keep the words that have been spoken to you. Otherwise, discipline will come, judgment will come, for he is a just God. And remember at the end of chapter 24 of Joshua, how it is that uh, Joshua was telling them, hey, listen, don't, don't take this lightly. Make sure you understand what you're agreeing to here. 
They said, no, 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 but we will obey the law. We agree. The Lord gives them direction. He delivers them time and time again. And so we see the very character of God through the book of Judges. As God's people, we should never presume because He is just, but we should also not despair because He is merciful. We should always remember that. Because sometimes we do come to the Lord with pride, um, taking Him lightly, acting in a presumptuous way, and we should never forget that He's also a just God. And if we take Him lightly, I, I sure do hope, just because of what His Word says, that He brings forth some type of discipline to help us, kind of bring us out of our stupor, you know, kind of sober us up to realize what we're in, the compromise that we're in, that we would look up and ask for God's forgiveness. You know, throughout Judges, God's people continue to cry out to Him. And He continued to be merciful as He heard their cries and He would send a deliverer. And He would direct their hearts once more back to Him. So we see a broken people throughout this book, but we also see, and more importantly, a faithful God. So let's take a look at Judges chapter 1, verse 1, which begins, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And so we see here how the Israelites did the right thing. They started right. Joshua died. And here we have them responding to basically what Joshua had taught them to do, and that is to seek the Lord. And it's interesting how they responded once Joshua was there. They had Moses to deliver them from Egypt, as I had um, said earlier. They had Joshua to lead them across the Jordan and into the Promised Land, leading them in victories over many very strong enemies. The Canaanite kings. In fact, we learned in Joshua how it was that 30, a total of 31 kings were conquered. And yet Joshua did not, at this point, you know, he died, and, and what did he fail to do? He didn't do one thing, one thing that Moses did. He failed to name a successor. No successor. I'm sure if God had told him to name a successor, he would have named a successor, but he didn't tell him to name a successor. But Joshua did tell all of Israel several things. Put away the foreign gods and for them to incline their hearts to God, which meant serve Him. Put away those foreign gods and serve the Lord with all of your heart. You know, sometimes we, we tend to put away our foreign gods, our idols, the things that we worship, put in place of the Lord. But the Word of God always says to put off and then what? Put on. Because if you don't put on, then something else is going to creep in. So even Joshua told him, hey, listen, put away those foreign idols, those foreign gods, and incline your whole heart to the Lord, loving Him in this way. Serve Him. Serve Him. It's amazing how it is that 
as you're in fellowship. You know, sometimes we think that fellowship is just all the, the fun stuff that we do uh, after church or, you know, going here or there together. That's a, actually a product of fellowship. Those are friendships that you continue to develop even after you are serving the Lord and being built up here within the church. That's why it's important. Bible studies are important. Coming to services are important. And serving God together, whether it be children's ministry, ushering, uh, Bible study, whatever it is, serving the Lord. Hearts are knit, and you are in fellowship with the Lord together. You're worshiping Him together and growing. All those other things, by the way, like I said, those are, those are byproducts of the true fellowship that we have in the Lord as we serve Him. And so that's what Joshua had told them. Put away those foreign gods and serve the Lord. For a people that had been led by God, ordained men, it was difficult for them to imagine not being led by someone that the Lord had chosen. I mean, for all of these years, they had been led either by Moses. Well, you can go back. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, even. If you go back to Joseph's time, Joseph was their deliverer. Remember, there was a famine in the land, and what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good, and Joseph knew that very well. And so he had people like that. And listen, as we go back in the history of Israel, and we think about all of those things, all of those people that God sent to his people, we know that God is faithful. And that's what we see all throughout. But they just had Moses. They just had Joshua. And now they don't have any one person that was leading them as a nation. And so they inquired of the Lord asking, who was to lead them in this fight against the Canaanites? They understood that the battle was before them. And they were asking, who's going to lead us in this fight against the Canaanites? We still haven't taken possession of the whole land. And they were aware of that. This was a confession as well. A confession is a simple agreement with the Lord. We're not there yet. I know you gave us this commandment, but we're not there yet. And before God begins to raise up judges, we're going to go through basically this chapter. And the next chapter is where we finally meet up with the judges. He identifies those leaders who were among them already to lead the battles and continue to gain possession of the promised land. As they looked to God for these leaders, he always, like I mentioned, provides for them. There would be some some judges that would be raised up among the people that were not elected by, by the people. Nor did they automatically come into the role of leadership because of who they followed in their family. It was nothing like that. It was not like the royal family. It was, my son is going to follow me. No, the Lord it, it was appointed different people at different times as he heard the cries of his people. But they were anointed. They were especially gifted by God to lead his people in their times of need. The people will very soon receive those ordained judges, and they did indeed respect their role. Why? Because they recognized them as being sent by the Lord to deliver them from what they found themselves in. Remember that the Israelites were in a land that was surrounded by idolatrous people who were regarded as evil because they rejected God and worshipped other gods. And these were the people that they were supposed to wipe out and come into the land and possess. Judges means, uh, the word judges means a heroic leader 
who is sent to put right. Shaphat is a word for judge. And that comes from the word shofetin. That is, to put right. And so these judges were sent divinely by the Lord to bring upright the nation of Israel. As we're going through the word of God, what is the very thing that brings us upright, rights us before the Lord? It's not any one person. People deliver the word of God. They teach the word of God. They explain the word of God, and, and that's fine. But the very thing that, that places us right before the Lord is the word of God. The word of God is that which brings us into the very image that we are to reflect. Now, I believe the very same environment that the Israelites were in in that day, we find ourselves in today. What are we surrounded with? Idolatrous people. And and there are several things that they have on their minds all the time. There is the pursuit of money, right? There is uh, the perversion of intimacy, sex. But we also, with that, have a people around us that are making God into whatever it is that they want God to be. I, it, it, it is not surprising how it is that within the church, and I, and I use that term loosely, um, openly with everyone who professes to be Christians, um, how it is that um, there, a lot of people are making uh, God to be something that he's not, according to the word of God. We have the very same we have that today. They had that back then. And the Lord still brings us to that place to where we are to trust in him and follow him regardless of what the world is doing. In fact, Joshua said in Joshua 24 verse 15, right? He he challenged them. He called on them. But if if you don't put down those foreign idols, if you don't follow the Lord, as for me and my house, it really doesn't matter. As far as me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So that's what he calls us to. Individual, personal responsibility and accountability before the Lord. So that's what we have at this very time. And so they they asked the right question. Who's going to lead them against the Canaanites? But they didn't ask each other. They didn't ask the other tribes. They asked the Lord. They said, who shall go up First, for us against the Canaanites to fight against them. And verse 2, as we continue, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. And so Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the, and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and, found, and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. 
And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. So, who was to lead? Judah was to lead. And he asked his brother Simeon, Come on, let's do this together. One thing we as God's people should always know is that even if we are without an earthly leader, we are never without the leader. We are never without the Lord. We should always seek His leading. And and that's why I love this, how it is that from verse 1, they're asking the Lord, who's going to lead us? Is it someone or no one? And He gave the answer, it was Judah. That is who was going to lead. The Israelites were challenged to trust the Lord from the very get-go after Joshua died. More during this time than ever before. But what, what, what is amazing about the Lord is that He will always give us what we need. He is faithful. Again, I, I have to point you back to His faithfulness, how it is that He provides always. And in Luke chapter 11, verse 9, it says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. This, by the way, will come back as we later consider um, the daughter of Caleb and what it was that she asked for. But God tells us to do this. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. He tells you He wants to hear from us. They asked, and God answered them by telling them, Judah, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. It was very clear. And as Judah was obedient to the Lord, so he went and led and knew victories over those he went up against. The Canaanites, the Perizzites. And just because the Lord told Judah that he would lead them in victory didn't mean that he couldn't ask anyone to go with him. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't just him. This is one of the things that the Lord is blessed by. You know, if you, if you think that maybe the Lord has told me to do this one thing, uh, ask for discernment and wisdom. Because it could be that you, you need some help along the way. And Judah recognized that and he, he asked him, Simeon, come along with me. Let's go do this. The Lord has given them into my hands, but let's do, do this together. It sure blesses the Lord when there is fellowship and communion among the brethren. When we come together and we continue to move forward in the name of the Lord, oh, there's so many more that are blessed by it. Right? If, you just, if you share that. And don't be shy. Don't hold your hand back from asking others Come along, you'll be blessed. I I always go back to the first time I experienced uh, the blessing of serving the Lord. I I just, I I don't know, prior to serving the Lord, I knew forgiveness and I knew, you know, this this beautiful relationship with the Lord, but it, it just took it to a whole different place. My relationship with the Lord when I started serving Him. There is nothing on earth that is more satisfying and beautiful and for me in my own life than to serve the Lord. I know there are battles. I know that we come against the enemy in, in that place. But at the same time, there's nothing, there's nothing better than serving the Lord. 
nothing better. And so Judah had asked Simeon to come along with him. They defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites and, the, and this Adonai Bezek, right? He was, we know he was a powerful king. In fact, he had previously defeated 70 kings. And what did he do with them? He did, did something very peculiar, no? He cut off their, their thumbs and big toes. You don't realize how much you need your thumbs and your big toes until you don't have them. Balance, I mean, try grabbing something with just these four fingers. It's like a, a sloth, right? A sloth does that. Right? But they have claws. They're supposed to climb. They're, they're not humans. They're... These people, the kings that he had cut the thumbs and toes off were to, it, it was for a specific reason. You know, we think, wow, that's... Uh, weird, right? He had some problems mentally. Well, he did, of course. But it was to humiliate them. They were, at that point, useless in battle. They couldn't be used. And so he did that to all these kings, and they were uh, put uh, to labor, to serve him. And so what was done to them, now was done to him. So they brought him back to Jerusalem, thumbless and big toeless, back to Jerusalem, and, and he died there. But what's interesting is uh, the meaning of Adonai Bezek. So Ad, Adonai, you know what Adonai means, right? Lord. Adonai Bezek means Lord of Lightning. Right? So Lord of Lightning, thumbless, toeless. Now he's worthless, Right? And pretty soon he was, he was a, a, a dead Adonai Bezek. But someone who was formidable, he was, he was powerful. He killed 17 kings. He conquered them all and, and put them to serve him. But he was no match for the Lord of all creation. He, he was no match at all. No matter what, what name he had, it didn't matter. He was... He was no match for the God of all creation, the Lord of the universe, of everything. And so we see again here, I, I have to keep going back to the faithfulness of God, the power of God, His sovereignty, and how it is that there was no match to God. And, and if the Lord had told Judah, go, you will be victorious, then he went. And in that uh, confidence, he brought Simeon, and they did this together. Let's continue, verse 8, which says, And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and um, Ammon and Talmai. From there... They went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's, son, son, uh, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father, or urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? 
And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Let's stop there for a moment. So what we have here is the men of Judah fought against and defeated um, those in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the Canaanites, also in the hill country, the Negev, the lowland, speaking of the lower country or the valley between the hillside, which is Jerusalem, and and then um, going south toward the uh, Mediterranean uh, Sea. And then we have the hill country that includes Jerusalem and heads down toward the Dead Sea. And he also named the area that was conquered that was next to the Dead Sea and went down towards Sinai, the Sinai Peninsula, but didn't stretch all the way to the Sinai Peninsula, but in that direction. So all of this was conquered by Judah and Simeon. And west, southwest of Hebron is this very city that was addressed as Caleb saying, hey, whoever leads uh, battle into Kiriath Sefer and overtakes it to him, I will give my daughter's hand in marriage. And so he promised this and this man, Aixa, he came and he did that very thing. He battled against Kiriath Sefer and captures it. And so Othniel did uh, or took uh, Caleb's daughter, daughter's hand in marriage. Now, I can understand why many sermons have been written and delivered on these few verses we find here, uh, verses 11 through 15. In fact, C.H. Spurgeon had uh, wrote one and delivered this sermon titled, Aixas Asking a Pattern of Prayer which he identified as a good example of prayer. A a parable of prayer is what we have here. There are some excellent points to draw and apply for our own prayer life with the Lord from this very situation that we see here. At the time that she came alongside her new husband, she tried to persuade him. Uh, We know that she she did everything to, to try and convince him to ask her father for a, field in, for a field. And that's what we see here as she said, uh, when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. She was certain that Caleb would give Othniel what he asked. For whatever reason, and we don't know, because she went from asking Othniel, her, her new husband, to dismounting from her donkey and, and coming before her father. We, we don't know why, but, but she did that. She dismounted and came before her father. Her posture alone communicated to her father that she had a request in her heart. You know, we know if you have kids, you know. When they come, they have that stance, that posture, that countenance to where, uh, what do you want, right? You ask that question, what, what do you need? What can I do for you, <laughs> right? You just know. And Caleb was no different with his daughter. And so he asked. Some very profound words here. Very insightful. What do you want? Asa, you can see, was confident in asking for a blessing. In fact, in what she said, she considered 
a previous blessing, a huge blessing. Oh, you gave me land in the Negev. Let me ask you also for this, this blessing. And then she asked specifically for something in addition to what she had already been given, the Negev and now also the springs of water. Can I have the springs of water? Some very important things here. Exus posture. Demonstrated humility and not presumption. And at the same time, as she approached her father, she approached him with confidence and eagerness. That's beautiful. When, when someone approaches in that way, and there, there's confidence and there's an eagerness to this approach, but at the same time, there's this humility. There, there's no presumption whatsoever. Ixa knew that she was asking for a blessing. She knew that and, and didn't come pridefully in a posture of entitlement. There's too much entitlement out there today. Too much, even among God's people. Uh, you, you promised and therefore I'm entitled. Well, read the rest of the book. And let's see what we deserve, right? We should always ask, but we, we should also know that he is, he is God and he knows best. And we should leave it to him. And therefore, we come with confidence and with eagerness and at the same time with a humility and a surrender to his sovereignty and to his will. In fact, the Lord demonstrated this very well in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he knew what, we, what he was going to come up against. And he was pleading with the Lord, right? He was pleading with the Father. Oh, if this cup can pass. Nonetheless, may your will be done, not mine. She didn't, Aixa did not approach her father in a posture of entitlement, irreverent, nor in a flippant manner. Aixa asked specifically, knowing that she had previously received the blessing of land in the Negev, and now was asking for the springs of water. And we know it was told to us over and over and over as we were in Israel. Water is life. Water is life, right? How, how many days can you live without water? Three days. Three days, that's it. And so, you know, you have this arid land semi-arid land. And, and if you're there without water, what good is the land, right? And, and so, so she was asking, Father, can, can I have, you know, I know you gave me this land, but the spring's also the water. For you know, Father, water is life. We need to notice here that her father did not criticize her for asking. Haven't I given you enough? Aren't you content with the land that I have given you? He didn't give her a hard time. That's what was absent. Nor did he reject her, but he gave her above and beyond what she had asked for. Um, I, I, I enjoy doing that for my boys. I do. I, and I know that for myself. It's like they'll ask for, like, let's just say for instance, and this is, this is something that, uh, that I like to do. Uh, both uh, Isaac and Isaiah, they, they love soccer. They both love soccer. 
I remember going and they tell me, hey, Dad, you know, I need some cleats. Okay, let's go get some cleats. You know, and, and they were looking at these cleats and I was looking at some other cleats. You know, they're asking for these, but I just want to give them something better. If I can, why not, right? I'd be so blessed with that. I just wanted to give them a little more than what that they had asked for. And there's other ways. I'm sure you've done it too, as you have your kids. You want to give them a little more, a little more. That's why we have this mentality, by the way, today, to where we want our kids to have it better than we did. Here's the thing, is we need to see that in a spiritual sense and not so much in a material sense. I'm talking about a, a material thing here with those cleats. But what we need to desire more and above anything else is for them to get more from us as it pertains to Jesus and their relationship with him. I wasn't, it wasn't until later in my life when I came to the Lord. I, I so much more want them to come to the Lord when they're young and to walk with the Lord, not have to experience all the dumb stuff that I experienced until I was on my back and, and I knew that the Lord was there and, and I cried out to him, just as we were going to see the Israelites did. But he didn't criticize her. He didn't reject her, but gave her above and beyond what she had asked for. We ask for God's wisdom according to his word, but we also ask for a spirit to refresh us and give us understanding that we may receive what we need in time of need. As we have received previously, we can be certain that we will receive today as we have need and even more so. The Lord wants to bless us above and beyond what we are asking for. But ask, we must. He tells us to ask. When, we, when he tells us to pray without ceasing, what are we doing? We're asking, interceding, we're praising him. We're doing, doing all that. But he wants to hear from us constantly, all the time, continuously. As God delights in our asking and answers accordingly as we align our requests with what blesses and glorifies him. What a beautiful exchange we have here with Caleb and his daughter. What a great example of petitioning our Father, acknowledging past blessings and approaching Him humbly and with eagerness because He desires to bless us. He desires that. But we see as we continue on some victories and some fumbles as we continue in verse 16. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother. And they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Sepheth and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So victories and fumbles is what we have here. The Kenites, these are Jethro's descendants, along with Judah, settled the people in the city of Palms. Now, we, we know that Jericho is actually also known as the city of Palms, but it's believed that there was another city south uh, from where Jericho is today 
south, uh, southern part of uh, the Dead Sea that is addressed here. But we don't know. We don't know if it's actually Jericho or if it's another city that's uh, down south from there. Nonetheless, Judah and Simeon continue to have victories over the Canaanites in Sephath, Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron. And so they moved outward from the Dead Sea because we know that Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron is toward the coast, and that is toward the Mediterranean Sea. Now, verse 19 is interesting because it both says that the Lord was with Judah, but at the same time, Judah could not drive out the people in the plain because they had chariots of fire. Who could go up against chariots of fire, right? But I have to point out that this was, this was a fumble. Why? Well, remember how the Egyptian army was drowned in the Red Sea by the Lord? I mean, talk about an army that was coming against them. Did the Israelites have chariots of iron? Did they have cannons or something? They didn't have anything. In fact, they feared for their lives, right? They were complaining to Moses, why did you bring us over here? You know, we need to go back. You brought us, brought us out here to die. They, they forgot. They forgot how a fortified city like Jericho, how its walls came tumbling down. It was no match for the creator of the universe and how the Lord had sustained the people in the wilderness with manna from heaven and brought forth water from the rock and how he prevented their clothes from wearing out and how he brought them into the promised land across the Jordan. It's interesting because we too can have great faith at certain times, but fail at other times. It's like, wow, what, what, a, what a person of great faith, exercising great faith. And then we turn around the next moment and, and we, we are faithless. And we see here with Judah that very same thing. They had chariots of iron who can go up against them. This is why we need to be reminded often of who our God is and what He is capable of doing on our behalf and live life exercising full and unrestrained faith in Him. It's not a faith that is blind or is reckless. It's a faith that is in full knowledge and understanding of His faithfulness and therefore we, we step out. Not blindly but with full knowledge of how faithful the Lord is. I love this Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We also have another fumble here with the Benjamites failing to drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, right? So we have that as well. And we're going to see that throughout. In fact, the remainder of the chapter is that very same thing. But sandwiched between the Benjamites and their failure and, the, and, and Judah and his failure um, going up against these chariots of iron, we have this young man by the name of Caleb who is 85 who asked for the hill country knowing that the sons of Anak were there, the Anakim. They lived there in fortified cities is what we know according to Joshua chapter 14. And he believed that if God was with him, then he shall drive them out. Give me the hill country at 85. And so between Benjamin and Judah and their fumbles, failures, compromises, we see Caleb, who is faithful. And how it was that he took out the three giants 
and all their people in the fortified cities that were in that hill country. We see here in Judges that Caleb was successful because God was with him and his faith was in God, period. That was it. Come what may, give me the hill country. If God is with me, I shall drive them out. Let's go do this thing. I love that kind of confidence in the Lord, that kind of faith in the Lord. You just lean on him and let's, let's do this thing. And then as we continue, verse 22, it says, The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. And so we see here how it was that um, Joseph was named, but we know that Joseph uh, had two tribes, was comprised of two tribes, that is Manasseh and also Ephraim, and they conquered Bethel. They didn't have victory because of the man who had led them, right? They had sent spies, and this man was coming out, you know, show us the way, and we'll go ahead and, you know, have mercy on you and your family. It wasn't because of him. It wasn't because they were so great. It was because the Lord was with them. And that's what we see here at the very beginning of verse 22, which says the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel and the Lord was with them. We always need to remember that, that the only reason we have victory and we have success and we have favor is because the the Lord is with us all the way through. Give him glory. Give him all the glory. It belongs to him. So give glory to God and rest in His power and might. We have none to offer. Nothing at all. We just don't. And then we see this, the failure, the compromise of the other tribes of Israel as we continue on through the rest of this chapter. Verse 27 says, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean, and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, or the inhabitants of uh, Nalal. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Elab, or of Axib, or of Helba, or of Aphek, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, in the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Bet Shemesh or the inhabitants of Bet Anan. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Bet Shemesh and Bet Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Shalbim. But the, land, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the board of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim 
acrobim from Selah and upward. The tribes, basically the bottom line, they, they fail to drive out all of the Canaanites from the promised land. In some cases, the Canaanites dwelt, if you notice, the Canaanites dwelt with the tribes of Israel, and at other times, the Israelites dwelt with the Canaanites. So that speaks of the majority, the power where it lied, uh, some with the Israelites, and yet they still failed to drive them completely out. They were either way compromises, but in the latter, you see how the power and majority was with the Canaanites and not with the Israelites. And that's interesting. Wherever you go, there was, there was not a man that would stand before you, is what the Lord said to Joshua. And here we have the Israelites who were compromising and mixing now with the people of the land. The very thing that the Lord had told them not to do. There were still other times when even when the Israelites grew in power. We see that right from the get-go with um, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. This is with the tribe of Manasseh. They grew in power. They grew in strength. And yet they still failed to drive them completely out. Instead, they put them to forced labor. And still others, the Amorites. Uh, we'll just go ahead and make this boundary. You stay over there, we'll stay over here. But yet it was all given to who? The Israelites. The whole thing, the Israelites. This is your land. This is the promised land. I am commanding you to drive everything, all the enemies of the Lord out. They failed to do that. Set up some boundaries. Mixing with them. Doing all of that. It's, always, it's also worth noting, and I have no doubt, of this very thing that when one tribe compromised, again, I have no doubt that the other tribes were encouraged to do the very same thing. Please think about that. That is why it's very important for us as, as God's people, as Christians, as, as we, we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. How it is that when we compromise in, in any way, I have no doubt that we cause others to stumble around us. It is better that a millstone be wrapped around your neck and you be thrown into the depths of the waters than for you to cause one of these little ones to fall. These, these little ones, the, the, the meaning there talks about those who are infants in the Lord. Those who lack discernment. And so we as hopefully mature believers can serve in a way that is uncompromising to those things that the Lord tells us you shouldn't compromise in those things. Because we may be the very 
vessels used to cause others to stumble when we shouldn't. And I, I totally, as I see this, I think, you know what? When, when one tribe compromised, I think the others, it was easier for them to just, yeah, we'll compromise. What'd you do? You made a deal with them? Yeah, we made a deal with them. And, and they, they said, they said that they would stay on that side of the border. Um, there were seven of us that went to Israel. There are problems still today. How many rockets have flown into Israel from Gaza today, like in the last week or so? Well, over 100, right? I mean, I think it was 60 just in, in, at one time that they tossed over. They, they, they hit a home and injured seven people, including children, uh, just in the northern part of Tel Aviv. If you look at Gaza and where Tel Aviv is, that's, that's a good distance. And they went well into the heart of Israel. They're still dealing with the effects of what we're going over right now. Still now. We have plenty of churches around us. We have plenty of Christians around us. If one church or one Christian compromise with a little leaven and encourages others to do the same. God never said that it would be easy to conquer the promised land. He never told them that. In fact, he told them that you you were to drive out the inhabitants of the land, to take possession of the land. But he did promise them that they would conquer as long as they kept walking forth in faith in him, in obedience to him, and did not stray from him. He told them, it's, it's, all, it's all yours. Just don't, don't go to the right, don't go to the left. Just stay, stay on that path that I've given to you. Just stay there. And in so doing, he would not allow one man to stand before them. Likewise, we should know that the Christian life is not an easy life. I don't know if your life has been easy, but it is not easy. But we are called... Although our obedience will not save us, although everything that we do will not save us, we ought to be examples of what the Lord commands us to be, His standard. Or should we not? We are to glorify Him. But it's not easy. We need to know, though, that God is with us and He desires that we have faith in Him and turn from our wicked ways, our sin, and forsake it. And follow him. Don't ever trust the enemies of God. Don't compromise. Don't make deals with them. Don't do it. You want to do that little boundary? You think, okay, I'm strong enough now. I can just put a little boundary around it and we're fine. You know what? Actually, in my life, uh, the Lord is more powerful than anything. But, you know, this part over here, I'm going to leave alone. I'm not going to deal with. Friendship with the world is enmity with God, is what James 4.4 4 says. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded. In other words, be, be aware. Be aware, be conscientious, be deliberate about looking around you. Be aware. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour 
We know that according to John 10.10, the enemy is around what to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus has come to give us life in that more abundantly, right? And, And so it's not something to play with. It's something to take seriously in our own lives, spiritually. And so the Lord calls us to confess our sins to him. And he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to walk upright before him. You know, as Peter writes this, he's, he's telling us to be watchful, to be sober-minded. We are to put the full armor of God because we know that th- this, this war is, is in the heavenlies. And so we pray. We, we know that we have the Lord's salvation, but we walk forth with this armor that we can fight against, against the schemes of the enemy. We should never trust him, but we should always be ready to fight against him. We ought to be warriors as God has called us to. So we begin the book of Judges, and we have a lot more to go in the coming chapters. We will see this cycle of sometimes being doing very well and other times of compromise, and we'll see how it goes in cycles. But we'll learn a lot about the faithfulness of God and how it is that he, he raises people up to do his work, even in the midst of of such depravity and such sin, even among his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once more for your word, how it ministers to us and how it has even at this point, up to this point. Lord, I pray that it would resonate in our hearts, that we would would chew on this word that we have come to study this evening, that we would, that we would be encouraged to walk according to your word, that we would bless and glorify you in so doing and encourage others to do the same. And so, Father, help us. Fill us with your spirit. May we go forth in your spirit because if we walk in the spirit, your word tells us that we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So help us to do that very thing. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your long-suffering, your patience with us and the grace, mercy, and love that we have before us always in you. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.